Cool. Uh, well, since, uh, since Mickey ratted me out for, that I'm preaching for a grade today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rat him out on his forgetfulness. I asked him a couple weeks ago, I said, hey, um, can I preach sometime soon for my, for my preaching class? I need to record it and all of those things. And he said, sure, how's the 16th? I said, sounds great. Uh, so this last week, I think it was Wednesday, I was in my office, I was working on my sermon, and Mickey came in, and he goes, oh, hey, when are you preaching again? I said, Sunday. He goes, really? I said, yeah, we, we talked about it. He goes, oh, man. I said, did you already write your sermon? He goes, oh, I'm about halfway through. So um, we, we debated on whether Mickey just gets a head start for next week or just tell the people to settle in, and we're going back to back this Sunday. Um, turn with me, if you would, to... 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. When I was, uh, when I was 19 years old, I enlisted in the army. Uh, and there are there's some guys who, when they enlist in the military, they're just already physical specimens. I was not one of those. Uh, I, I had played sports in high school, and then after high school, went to college for a year for music. So in that year, I played a lot of music. I did no physical exercise. So when I joined, I had, you know, two or three months to try to prepare myself for basic training. And I started running, I started doing push-ups, I started doing set-ups. And I, I thought that I was, I thought I was prepared, I thought I was in pretty good shape. Uh, and then I, then I shipped off to Fort Benning, Georgia. And you have about two weeks of in-processing. And in-processing wasn't bad, you got to eat good. And the drill sergeants for in-processing were not mean and, and all of those things. Uh, but then we moved from in-processing to our actual training unit, and I realized very quickly that I was not actually very well prepared for the, for the whole thing. Um, you know, we did, our, our first PT test was two or three days in, and the night before, uh, we were getting smoked, and the drill sergeants made us do it to the cadence of, you're gonna fail your PT test, right? Uh, sure enough, just about everybody did fail the PT test, and then in true army fashion, we got punished for failing the PT test that they made us fail in the first place. So, you know, I barely passed my run on that one. I barely passed my sit-ups, failed the push-ups like most people did. I remember my first ruck march. It was not very much. It was maybe three miles with 20 to 25 pounds on our back. And I remember thinking like, man, this is tough because I'd, you know, I'd never just put a bunch of weight in a backpack and walked down the street before. Um, I remember the first time, you know, I, I grew up shooting long rifles and shotguns and stuff. And the first time that we went to the, went to the belt-fed weapon range, uh, a machine gun is just a whole different animal. And I remember the first time I got down in the prone, they showed us how to do everything. And I tried my best to put all my weight behind it, got in a good position. I pulled the trigger, three to five round bursts, and it just, right, like I, no telling where it went. I just didn't have, like I couldn't get my weight behind it. But those things, you know, they improved over time. Um, and so I, I finished basic training, went straight into infantry school, finished that. I get sent to my unit in Hawaii. I felt pretty good about myself. You know, I, was, I thought I was a big guy now. Then I get to my unit and I find out that the real army, the day-to-day -day life in an infantry unit is just significantly more difficult than a training unit. Um, first day, it, it's kind of like being the new kid in school. Uh, if you're the new kid in school and all of the upperclassmen are combat veterans with that like look in their eye, you know, uh, basic training, I just blended in. All of a sudden you're the one new guy in a, in a new platoon. First day we went on a run and I remember being about five miles in and I'm dry heaving. I've never run that fast. Like all of a sudden the runs are fast and I'm getting made fun of by the squad leader and 
But, you know, you, you, uh, you fast forward through those three years of training cycles, deployment. Um, they actually gave me the saw. Jesse Killinger made fun of me a couple weeks ago. He said, you were the saw gunner? We always gave the saw to, like, the short squat guys. I said, yeah, they thought it would be funny to give it to the tallest, skinniest guy in the platoon. Um, but you know what? I carried that bad boy for three years, and by the end, they had to, like, pry it out of my hands, right? First time I could barely, by the end, um, was, was pretty proficient in it. The PT test that I failed the first time, I got to where I loved PT test days because that was an easy day of PT. You only had to run two miles. Uh, you only had to do one set of push-ups, only one set of sit-ups. Um, ruck marches got longer, faster. All of that to say, right, is that when I joined, I, like I was, I was weak. I couldn't do anything. But by the end of those three years of day in, day out, physical training, of training the body, I was in the best shape of my life uh, since or for the future, right? Because uh, the, the day that I got out of the army was the day that I stopped waking up at five o'clock in the morning to work out. And, you know, I, I try to stay in shape. I try to exercise. But the truth is that I'm just never going to be in that kind of shape again because I knew what it took to, that, to get to that point, And I just, I don't have it in me anymore. But to get there, it took... It took discipline, it took hard work, it took pushing through physical pain, it took pushing through uh, the mental aspect of it. And there's a lot of guys in this room who are veterans, and, and some of them, you know, did uh, spent time in special operations, so they understand that even to another level, that it takes, it takes a lot to get from point A to point B. And it's that experience that makes this passage really um, really stick in my mind. You know, it's one that, that I've read before, uh, but a few weeks ago I was reading my daily, my daily Bible reading, and, and it just it stuck in my head, this comparison that Paul makes between bodily training and training for godliness. It's, I, I just started to meditate on it and really compare what it took for bodily training, anybody who's ever done bodily training, and Paul makes a comparison to training in godliness. So let's read 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to read verses 7 through 10. If you'd stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. Paul writes, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning thankful that we can gather, thankful that we can hear from your word. We thank you for your word. Um, God, I, I am a, an imperfect man, as anybody who preaches is, but we are, we are proclaiming the perfect truths of your word. And we believe wholeheartedly that there is a power in the proclamation of your word. So this morning, God, I pray that you would, um, that you would use me to, to proclaim the truth of your word and that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear what you have to say through us as, as the Holy Spirit illuminates um, our spiritual eyes to see the truth of your word. And we pray these sayings in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. So a little background to 
the, uh, the book of 1 Timothy. So Timothy was a, a spiritual son of the Apostle Paul. Timothy had been called to pastor the church in Ephesus. And so this is a letter from Paul to Timothy instructing him on how to shepherd his church. So if you look back through the, the first three chapters, what you'll see is Paul, um, he, he warns Timothy about false teachers. He gives a good presentation of the gospel. He encourages Timothy to pray for his people. He, uh, he gives the qualifications for elders, the qualifications for deacons, warns of more false teaching and those who would depart the faith. So it's one of what we would call the pastoral epistles. So on the one hand, these words are for Timothy as he leads a church. Paul says you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus if you put these things, if you take these things into account for your own life and you put it before the people. So on one hand, very specifically to Timothy as a pastor of a church, but whether you're leading a church or not, all Christians are called to train in godliness. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Training in godliness. Why do we train for godliness? First of all, training for godliness prevents us from falling into error. When we, when we train in irreverent, silly myths, that moves us away from godliness. The, instead of silly myths, some of your translations might read old wives' tales. Uh, that's actually the better translation of the Greek. Uh, the Greek reads, have nothing to do with the unholy, kai, which is a conjunction, and old wives' tales. While that might be a more literal translation, I still like silly myths better just because when I think of old wives' tales, uh, I think of things like if you shave hair, it'll grow back thicker. Um, I've been shaving my head for a while. It only gets thinner. And, and I'm sure there are many teenage boys that can attest shaving the face every day, trying to get that beard to grow in. There's, there's two things that help grow a, a nice, big, thick, manly beard, and, and it's genetics and time, right? Um, so I don't think those kind of wives' tales is what Paul is talking about. So, um, so I like the translation, silly myths. So have nothing to do with the unholy and with silly myths. Or maybe we could say with the unholy and with false teaching. Have nothing to do with these things. You can't train for weight loss if you're sitting on your couch watching Netflix all day with a, with a box of donuts, right? It just, it just doesn't happen. Logically, it, it doesn't connect. A does not equal to B. These actions don't produce these results. In, in the same way, we can't train for godliness if we're wrapped up in, in unholiness and if we're wrapped up in false teaching. You can't train for love if you're holding on to bitterness, you can't train for peace if you're holding on to anger. You can't train for sexual purity. You can't grow in sexual purity if you're holding on to impurity. We can't grow in our knowledge of God if we're not spending time in God's word. We can't grow in our communion with God if we're not spending time in prayer. Here's one that you'll hear if you go out evangelizing with us. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I just don't go to church. That's not really my thing, right? Um, you know, and, and I would say it's not my place really to judge whether, whether that person might be a Christian or not. I can guarantee that that person is not a spiritually healthy Christian uh, because you can't grow in godliness disconnected from the local church. I wish that I could 
yank my eyeball out and like stick it around a corner, you know? Uh, But it doesn't work like that. A body part disconnected from the body doesn't operate the way it's supposed to. So have nothing to do with the unholy. Have nothing to do with silly myths or false teaching. We can't grow in godliness if we're, if we're consumed with the unholy, and we can't grow in godliness if we're being misled with false teaching. Imagine with me, if you will, uh, you want to become a power lifter, right? Maybe that's not my thing, but some of you, uh, you want to train to become a power lifter. So you go find a personal trainer and you tell them, I, man, there's a power lifting competition in eight months. I want to be ready for it. And your trainer says, all right, put on your running shoes. We're going 10 miles. Now, you might become a pretty good runner by the end of that. But do you know what's going to happen when you show up at your powerlifting competition and they put 300 pounds on the bar for you to bench? Maybe someone helps you get it off the bar and then you die, right? That's what happens. You've been misled, right? You've been misled. So in the same way, false teaching really could be It could be a sermon on its own, but here's the thing. There's a lot of Bible teaching out there that's not actually biblical. There's a lot of forms of Christianity out there that are not actually Christian. Um, New Age spirituality and Eastern spirituality have made their way into the fabric of our culture. It is all over the place. And it creeps into a lot of Christians' lives as well. The problem with false teaching is like someone wanting to train for a powerlifting competition whose personal trainer has them run in 10 miles is, is that you're being misled. You're going in a direction for sure, but you're going in the wrong direction. So the question is, how do we know? How do we know what is false teaching? How do we know what the unholy is? We train in godliness. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths Rather, train yourself for godliness. The word for train in verse 7 in the Greek is the word gymnazo, which is where we get the word gymnasium, where one trains the body. So Paul is saying that the opposite of spending your time and spending your life with false teaching, with unholiness, is to train yourself for godliness in the same way that a person would train their body in a gym. So I want to think a little bit on Paul's comparison here between bodily training and training in godliness. If you have an athlete that's training for for something, for most sports, uh, you know, not every sport you want to be like really big, but most sports, an athlete is training to become bigger. They're training to become faster. They're training to become stronger. That's kind of the whole point, right? So if an athlete uh, has that goal in mind, then they're going to do things that make them bigger, faster, stronger. They're going to eat things that make them bigger, faster, stronger. At the same time, they're going to avoid things that make them weaker, that make them smaller, that make them slower. And there's always two things that constitute bodily training. It's our diet and our exercise. Can you go on a diet and lose a lot of weight? Absolutely. Is there a limit, right? Is there a point that you can't go further without some exercise as well? Sure. On the flip side, can you exercise and see Uh, see some results? Sure. Um, Can you do it without diet? Can you reach the fullness of those? No, right? I can lift weights all that I want, uh, and I do, but there's a limit to how much I'm going to, how far I'm going to get, right? Because I need like 3,500 calories a day to start putting on weight, and I just don't have the discipline for it. You got to have good exercise 
and a proper diet. So like someone training the body, to train for godliness means that we practice those things that lead to godliness and we avoid those things that lead away from godliness. It's a very, very simple concept, right? Uh, Simple, not easy. Look at verse 6. Um, we didn't read that as we, as we read the passage, but verse 6, Paul tells Timothy, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine which you have followed. So how do we know what is unholy and what is false teaching? We train in what is holy and we train in good teaching. It's the illustration you've probably heard a hundred times if, if you've been around the church for long. The illustration of counterfeit, people who examine for counterfeits, uh, someone who sits, they're looking for counterfeit bills. They don't spend their time looking at counterfeit bills, right? They look at the real thing so that when the counterfeit comes across, they immediately recognize it. Our spiritual diet and our spiritual exercise is just as important to training in godliness as a physical diet and physical exercise is to someone training the body. God has given us his word. Read it. God has given us godly biblical teachers. Listen to them. God has given us the local church to connect to, to grow in, connect to it. God has given us the Holy Spirit, most importantly, to convict us, to encourage us, to rebuke us, to teach us, um, to exhort us, to sanctify us, grow us into the image of Christ, yield to him. We train in godliness so as to grow in godliness. We, we train in those things that make us spiritually stronger, and we avoid those things that make us spiritually weaker. Why? Because Paul says that training for godliness holds eternal promise. Training for godliness holds eternal promise. Promise. Verse 8, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. Notice that Paul does not say that bodily training is of no value. He says it's of some value. I would argue uh, in, in the military that bodily training is of a whole lot of value. Uh, when you're on foot patrol in country, you can't afford to be out of shape, right? The, the enemy does not care, in fact, would probably prefer that you be tired and out of shape. Uh, but maybe you're not, in, you're not in that context. Maybe you're just getting older and you want to stay healthy. And so you exercise, you watch your diet, you exercise, and there's benefit to that. But the truth is that the benefit is limited. You can be a marathon runner and you have a resting heart rate of 50 beats a minute, and that's good. But the truth is that someday, like all of us, you will have a resting heart rate of zero, right? We will all die. Our bodies will die. There is a limit to how beneficial bodily training is. But, Paul says, training in godliness has value both here and in eternity. Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Here's something to remember, that if you're a Christian— Your eternal life in Christ has already begun. You have already spiritually been brought from death to life. You've already been spiritually resurrected. Think of Ephesians 2 that we read earlier. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, 
but you have already been made alive in Christ. You have already been raised with Christ and been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So on one hand, there's, there's a not yet aspect to this because our physical bodies will still die. That's just the truth unless, you know, we're, we're here for the second coming. Um, our bodies will die and we'll be resurrected one day on the last day alongside the wicked, the wicked to everlasting punishment, the righteous to everlasting life and communion with Christ. So there's a not yet aspect to it, but there's, there's an already aspect too, and that we've already been spiritually resurrected. We've already been brought from death to life. So yes, we, we await the day when we experience it fully, but it's not like we're just biding our time, right? We're not just living here like, well, I'll just put up with this life until I can die. Eternal life has already begun. We've already been, we've already been brought to life. So it holds promise now in that we're already living in a spiritually resurrected life, but it holds promise also and the promise of the fullness of eternity. It's what Jesus says in Matthew 6. Store up your treasures, uh, not on earth where moth and rust destroy, but store up your treasures in heaven where nothing destroys. Or what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So a wreath or a, or a treasure or a trophy, or a crown. 1 Peter 1.4 says that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So there's a not yet aspect, uh, there's an already aspect, but there's also this promise in the fullness of eternity. And I, and I think here we can fall into this selfish temptation of thinking, man, I'm just storing my treasures up in heaven, and heaven is going to be awesome for me, right? Um, I'm going to have a big house uh, with lots of room and a big yard where we can play football and a big table with lots of food, right? There's a temptation to make it really selfish, right? But here's, here's, here's what, uh, what we read in, in Revelation 4, or not what we read, what I'm paraphrasing in, in Revelation 4. We learn that the rewards that we gain and the treasure we gain and the crown of life that we receive is not the end-all, be-all. Rather, the crown is cast at the feet of Jesus, the one who is truly worthy of the reward. It's the line from the old rugged cross, the version that we sing, till my trophies at last I lay down. We gain our treasures in heaven so that we can lay them down at the feet of Jesus. The point being that a big house isn't the reward like a good apartment on whatever street, uh, Golden Street, is not the reward. Jesus is the reward, right? Jesus is the reward. And there's a, the point of that is that, that the truth um, of, of training in godliness, what it comes down to, lest we make it selfish, lest we make it about us, it comes down to the glory of God. So what we talked about, in, even in Sunday school this morning, we were talking about in, in James, the controversial uh, statement that faith without works is dead and we're justified by works and not just faith, um, all of that. We, we talked about that good works are done to the glory of God, not as an end of themselves, to the glory of God. Our treasure in heaven, the fullness of our reward in eternity is to the glory of God. And unlike the benefits of bodily training, the glory of God is eternal. And then Paul says, the saying is trustworthy 
and deserving of full acceptance. Another temptation here is to to say, oh, well, I guess I just need to try really hard to be a good Christian. Like, that's what I got out of this sermon. Um, but if that's the route we take, then we're, we're headed for a life of guilt and a life of shame and an endless cycle of despair of trying to live up to something that we can't actually live up to. So our training for godliness prevents us from falling into error and it, and it holds eternal promise. But perhaps the most important point this morning is that our training in godliness is rooted in our hope in Christ. Verse 10 says, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God. So that's not to say that training for godliness doesn't take work. It does. Paul says this, for to this end we toil. Jesus tells us to pick up your cross and follow me. That sounds like work and toil to me. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, then you know this to be true, right? You know this to be true. There are those who would say, well, if God wants me to stop whatever sin, he'll just make me stop, right? It's, you know, it's not really up to me. Um, and in a sense, yes, it's the spirit that sanctifies us. But, but at the same time, Paul spends a whole lot of time in his writings saying, stop, right? Just stop it. Now, he always precursors with it. Uh, you, in, in Ephesians, for example, have been adopted into the family, like your salvation from before the foundations of the earth has been authored. Jesus accomplished it. The Spirit applies it. It always begins there. And then you've been dead and, and made alive. But there's always an aspect of now live like it. You've been saved. Now live like it. Is it difficult to fight the sin in our lives? Uh, I trust I'm not alone in saying yes. Um, are there seasons, are there days in our lives when we find it a fight to get into the word? Uh, I trust that I'm not alone in saying that, yes, there are seasons, there are days like that. Are there days when we're a little cranky, we're tired, hungry maybe, and we just don't really feel like being nice to people? Um, yes, there are days like that. Maybe for some of us, those days are more regular than for others. But the truth is that if you're training the body, there's days that you don't really feel like it right? There are days that you don't want to work out. It's late. You're tired. Uh, there's always tomorrow. Um, I've always said that I'm going to stop procrastinating tomorrow, right? There are going to be days where, where you mess up on your diet. You eat something you're not supposed to do, but you persist. You continue to toil and strive. Paul says we toil and we strive. I separated those two words out. When you read it in the English, you see we toil and we strive. It, it kind of just looks like flip sides of the same coin. Uh, but the word strive is actually a really interesting word. Most translations, as I looked across multiple translations, use the word strive or they use struggle. Um, but then if you look at the King James, uh, and it's funny because I give people a hard time about like, you know, King James is the only authorized version. Uh, but in this instance, the King James like is the best translation of, of this um, of this word, because the word is in the passive voice, which means that the, that the verb is acting on the subject. For example, if I were to say, I am punching, that's active, right? Passive would be to say, I am being punched. Like I'm on the receiving end of the punching, okay? 
Does that make sense? So this verb here, strive, is in the passive voice, which means that it's not something that we are doing. Rather, we're on the receiving end of the verb. So the way the King James translates it is suffer reproach. So to this end, we toil and we suffer reproach. There was a time not long ago for the American Christian where the struggle in the Christian life was largely just kind of within your own self. Your own sin struggle, your own struggle with spiritual disciplines. Um, and, and, you know, maybe you would miss out on some good times and people would make fun of you for being a Christian. But in general, there wasn't a ton of outside pressure. Uh, but those things have, have rapidly changed. There's now an outside pressure in the Christian life that has not previously existed. And in that, I mean, where for, for most of, of Amer- really American Christianity's history, Christians have been the, the moral police, right? The Christians are just the ones trying to like kill our good times. We've made a shift that's new to where Christians are now the immoral ones, right? Culture sees us as the immoral ones. Now, I said that's new to American Christianity. It's not new to the history of the church. The reason that early Christians were persecuted was, one, they were accused of being atheists because they only believed in one God. Uh, They were accused of cannibalism with all their talk about the body and the blood. Um, They were accused of incestuous, just sexually promiscuous relationships uh, because they talked about loving their brother and their sister. So they were accused of incest. Um, so, so, you know, we're not the first Christians to experience this, but it's the first time in any of our lifetimes that we've, we've been um, in this position. If you don't buy into the unholy, if you don't buy into unbiblical worldviews, you will be reviled. The tragic shooting in Tennessee a few weeks ago is a perfect illustration of this, I think. Transgender, biological male, walks into a school kills six Christians, children and adults alike. And it was not a case of people who were killed who just happened to be Christians, right? That is the reason they were killed. Now, uh, I don't want to cast a wide net and say everybody has said this, but I, there have been significant pockets of people who have said, well, Christians weren't so mean to transgender people. That would have never happened, right? Um, it was an ideological Killing and, and here's the thing: if there have been ideological acts of violence, um, right? The Twin Towers. Nobody said, "Well, if America wasn't so oppressive to the Middle East, they wouldn't have done it." Right? But when it's Christians on the receiving end, all of a sudden, it's really their fault. There, there's no explanation for it. I've had this discussion with people so many times. There is no explanation except that it's spiritual right? Except that it's spiritual. Um, you know, our, our culture loves Eastern religion, and yet Buddhists and Hindus are some of the most violent religions on the face of the planet. I don't know if you know that. Extremely violent. Um, I, I met a Christian one time who said, yeah, in India, when you get baptized, you just expect to wake up in the hospital because you do it publicly, and the Hindus are going to put you in the hospital. Yeah, our culture is infatuated with Eastern religion. Um, I mean, we don't have to go down the, the road of uh, the problems that we've seen coming out of Islamic extremism, and yet we have the term Islamophobia. Um, it, but Christians, who are largely the most peaceful group of um, religions, 
in the world are on the receiving end of this stuff. It's spiritual. What it is, is it is a, is a fulfillment of Jesus's promise in Matthew 5.11, right? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Notice he says, falsely, utter evil against you falsely on my account. Well, what I'm not saying is that we set ourselves up with a persecution complex and we go on Facebook and we just like start something and then be like, man, look at me being persecuted, right? That doesn't count. You're, you know, uh, you, you get yourself into stuff sometimes. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Uh, what he's talking about is the fact that a Christian can speak truth in love and you'll still be hated for it. You can be the most loving, kind, gracious person and you will still be hated for it. You will still be reviled. I can promise you that there are people around you that hate you for no other reason than you believe what the Bible teaches on enter whatever cultural topic here. We toil and we are reviled. It's much easier not to toil, right? It's a lot easier just to do whatever we want to do. It's a lot easier not to toil. It's a lot easier to not be reviled. I don't know about you. I don't really like not being liked. Some people don't care. Um, you know, I like to be liked. It's a lot easier to just go with the current, to just go with the flow, not push back. But we don't. We toil and we strive. And it's for this end, in verse 10. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Uh, I, I really wish there was like a, uh, a way to transition into this, but there's not. So um, just time out as we address the phrase, Savior of all people, right? Because when you look at that, that can immediately look like, well, it's, it's teaching universalism. But we need to take the clear testimony of Scripture as a whole, when it says that God is the Savior of all people. Salvation is inclusive in that it doesn't matter your race, your ethnicity, your, your gender, uh, your socioeconomic status. God is the Savior of all people in that his salvation is for all kinds of people. In that his salvation is the only salvation for anybody. But that salvation is also exclusive in that it is found in Christ and Christ alone. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. There will be a day when every knee will bow, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. Doesn't, it's not dependent on whether or not you acknowledge it, right? We, we live in this postmodern, whatever's true for you is true for you kind of culture. And if your coat is God, then sure, whatever, right? Um, but as Christians, and this is one of the things that can get us in trouble, we believe in absolute truth, that there is an ultimate truth. So Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Savior. So in this general way, God is the Savior of all people, right? He's the only one. But in a specific salvific 
way. He is the Savior, especially of those who believe. So that being said, I've already mentioned that, that a danger uh, when we talk about training and godliness is, is to develop a kind of pull-yourself-by-your-bootstrap type of Christianity. Um, and the danger of that is that, uh, is, is that's not what the biblical testimony is. This last statement prevents us from falling into that error. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God. So have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, but instead train yourself for godliness. Have nothing to do with, with, with the ungodliness. Have nothing to do with uh, unbiblical worldviews. It's not so that at the end of our lives, we put everything up on some kind of cosmic scale and hope the good outweighs the bad. It's not so that we can have a better, happier, more successful life. It's not so that we can be puffed up in our pride and our godliness and flex our spiritual muscles at some kind of spiritual bodybuilding competition. It's to this end. We toil and we strive. We train ourselves for godliness because our hope is set on the living God. If our training for godliness was all on our shoulders, we would be in trouble. If our, um, if our suffering contempt was all on our shoulders, we'd be in trouble. If our um, training in, in true doctrine was all on our shoulders, we would be in trouble. If we're left to toil on our own, we'd be in trouble. If our fight against sin was just all on our shoulders, we'd be in trouble, right? But, but the, difference, the difference is that our hope is set on the living God. Christ is the foundation of our training in godliness, Christ is the fuel for our training in godliness. Christ is the end result of our training in godliness. It's not a matter of, of, of us mustering it up, right? It's, if, you, if you want to take the physical training illustration a little further, um, he, Jesus is the, he's the workout plan. He's the, he's the pre-workout supplement. He's the whatever music you need to listen to to work out. He's the, he's the protein shake after. He's the after picture that you're going for. He's the diet. He's the food. It's all Christ. The same grace that saves the Christian is the same grace that sustains the Christian. It's not a matter of, I'm saved by grace. Now I got to try really, really hard. Um, I kind of, I want to say I grew up with this idea. I think I probably just made it myself that, okay, Jesus saved me. Now I have to pay him back. Anybody ever kind of like heard that? Or like, why do we do good works? To pay God back for what he's done for us. That, that misses a massive point though, in that it's a debt that we can't pay. There's no, like if someone gives me a million dollars, guess what I, guess what I can't do? Right? I can't pay it back. Right? It's a debt that we cannot pay back. So our motivation isn't trying to pay God back for what he did because we can't. Rather, it comes out of a love for Christ because Christ is the foundation, the fuel, and the end goal. So we train for godliness, and sometimes we're going to miss a workout. Sometimes we're going to eat something that we shouldn't eat. And when we do, there's grace. There's always grace. Also, 
The same Holy Spirit that regenerates the Christian in salvation is the same Holy Spirit that sustains the Christian and sanctifies the Christian. The, the same Holy Spirit that descended on the church in the book of Acts and gave them power from on high to accomplish their mission is the same Holy Spirit that dwells in you if you are a Christian. I've heard Christians pray, Father, please give me the Holy Spirit. Right? Please do not do that. Don't do that. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, then, you know, let's talk about the gospel, right? You don't have to ask for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, he dwells inside of you. Now, we might ask for, um, for, for God's presence in a deeper way or any number of things, but the Holy Spirit dwells in you as a Christian. God has also given us the church. Notice we're just listing out these things. It's like, man, it's not on your shoulders. God has given us the church. I mentioned earlier, there's no training in godliness separated from the local church. Um, just like if I chop my finger off, uh, you know, if I put it on ice or milk, or is that a tooth? Whatever, tooth. <laughs> put my finger in milk. Um, maybe you can get it reconnected, but, but if you disconnect the body part from the body, eventually it dies. There's no training in godliness disconnected from the local church. Um, just like there's no, there's no bodily training, if you think from an athletic standpoint, done in isolation. Say you got a little kid, says, I'm going to be an NFL quarterback, but he never plays football. He never trains with anybody. He sits in his backyard and he throws a football into a trash can and he gets really good at it. The kid can go out to a football field by himself. He can drop back and he can put it in a trash can from 60 yards away. That's impressive. Is he ready for the NFL? No. You can't train in isolation. So we don't fight alone. We don't train alone. Our hope is not in us. Paul says it's to this end because we have our hope set on the living God. Uh, Chris is going to make his way up and play a little bit. But I want to I w- I remind you, Christian, to train yourself for godliness. That training... It prevents you from falling into error. It prevents you from being misled. It prevents you from training in the unholy. Train yourself for godliness because your training in godliness holds eternal promise because eternal life has already begun. Though our bodies die, as, a, as the truth and grace kids catechism would say, God has given me a soul that will never die. Eternal life has begun. And our training is not in our own efforts. It's founded foundationally in the work of Christ. Founded on Christ, sustained by Christ, the end goal is Christ. Now, to the person uh, who might be here this morning and you have not trusted in Christ as Savior, you've not repented of your sin and turned to Christ, you have no hope in God. You have no hope in God. Now, you can, you can apply some moral and ethical principles from the Bible to your life, and you'll be better for it. It's better to not murder than to murder, right? We can agree on that. But you're going to do it imperfectly, just like all of us do. And when you try to live up to God's standard and you do it imperfectly, then when you stand before God, you stand before God condemned. You stand before God guilty. And when you stand before God without the covering of Christ, there is no hope. Hell is full of subjectively good people, right? 
being a good person, training in godliness apart from salvation, you can't do it. There is no training in godliness apart from salvation. So again, it's all founded on Christ. That you owe a debt that you cannot pay to God. That your sin condemns you before God. But God in his great love and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus sent his son Jesus, who lived a perfect life that we can't live, went to the cross, died for our sin, paid the debt that we cannot owe, the full weight of the Father's wrath that was rightfully aimed at you was poured on the shoulders of Christ. And then he was buried, and three days later he came back from the dead, conquering sin and death, and it's in his resurrection life that the Christian now has resurrection life, that we have been brought from death to life the one who has trusted in Christ. So for the one who has not trusted in that message, trust in that this morning. Christian, your good works didn't save you and they won't sustain you. Only Christ sustains us. Turn to him, trust in him. We're gonna have just a time of response. The altar's open to do what you might uh, feel led to do by the Lord.